This morning I want you to look with me in the second chapter of Mark's gospel, beginning in verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 down through verse 17, record for us the call of Matthew, the disciple, the gospel writer, the former tax collector. We're going to reference his own words in Matthew chapter 9, and then also Luke chapter 5, as we look at this calling he received to follow Christ. I thought it interesting years ago as I read through a book some of you have read, John MacArthur's book entitled Twelve Ordinary Men, that goes through the life of each of those that Christ called to follow him. He said of Matthew, in all likelihood, none of the twelve was a more notorious sinner than Matthew. We have in that number Judas Iscariot, some former fishermen, a zealot. Interestingly, Christ took two of the most opposed, what we might call political parties of the day, the tax collectors and the zealots, and he chose one out of each of those groups to be a disciple of his, reconciling them to himself first and then to one another. There was no greater enemy of a tax collector than a zealot or vice versa. The zealots were called dagger men because very often they would conceal a dagger in their cloak and walk up to a tax collector and take his life. So we have Matthew and Simon called to be disciples placed within this small band of Jesus's followers. And if John MacArthur is right, perhaps Matthew was the most notorious because of his occupation. The scriptures don't really tell us much about tax collectors, though several of them are mentioned. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at the conversion of Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector. Tax collectors were by far the most despised people in Israel. Their own countrymen hated them. Reason being, tax collectors had sold out to the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people to give the Roman government the vast majority of that, but yes, by the way, hold back some of that for themselves. Tax collectors were very rich men. Tax collectors had a lot of wealth, and so that's important when we look at Matthew because one of the details that Luke gives us is that he immediately forsook it all and followed Jesus. Very much unlike the rich young man who would not give up his worldly pursuits, Matthew very quickly, because of the effective nature of Christ's call to him, left it all suddenly. Tax collectors were considered traitors, extortionists, taking money from their own people to satisfy the Roman government and then line their own pockets. So when we read in the scriptures, in the gospels, the salvation of a tax collector, it is no small thing. But yet, really, the salvation of anyone is no small thing, right? We're all lost in sin, all dead in sin, living out our sinfulness to one degree or another. And one of the things we're going to look at as we read through this in Mark is the ease with which Jesus 
saved this man. The ease with which Matthew was converted by the powerful Christ. Two words of Jesus to Matthew completely changed him. Two words to Matthew completely interrupted the course of his life, set him on a new course, and then he would be greatly used of the Spirit of God to write the longest of the gospel records and record many of the sayings and the miracles, the parables of Christ. So let's read out of Mark chapter 2, verse 13, about the calling of Matthew. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you'll flip back to the ninth chapter of Matthew, we'll read this account in his own words. Verse 9 of the ninth chapter of Matthew, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew. So it's of note here that Levi in Mark chapter 2, the son of Alphaeus, and Matthew, the disciple and gospel writer, are one and the same men. Much like Jesus renamed Simon Peter, though we aren't given the specific details of Matthew's being renamed, he was taken from being Levi, the tax collector, to Matthew, the disciple of the Lord. He says to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. It happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And Matthew records for us how Jesus quotes out of the Old Testament prophet Hosea when he says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then if you'll forward over to Luke chapter 5, a few words about the same event, beginning in verse 27. I'm reading all of these because there are a few details recorded in each gospel that I'm going to draw from. So beginning in Luke 5, 27, after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. 
Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we can have the scriptures open and read from them and be instructed and reminded of your mercy and grace given to this man named Matthew. Lord, help us all to hear the same call from Christ this morning, to follow him. Help us all be as willing and quick to forsake all, to leave all, and follow him. Lord, give this grace, we pray. Do it for Christ's sake. In his name, amen. So we're going to stay most of our time this morning in the second chapter of Mark. If you want to find your place there again in verse 13. The first thing that I want us to see out of this is the grace of Christ in finding one out of a multitude. We can't miss this as we read all three of the gospel records of Matthew's calling to Christ. All the gospels record this detail for us that there was a multitude that came out to Jesus probably numbering in the hundreds, if not thousands. Mark places this event in Matthew's life just after Jesus had healed the paralytic. You remember how Jesus was teaching in a house. It was crowded. These friends brought the paralytic man to the house, couldn't get in the door, so they took him on the roof, dug through, lowered him down. And Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed and went to the presence of them all saying, we never saw anything like this. And so these are really parallel accounts. One, a physical raising up, the other, a spiritual raising up. But notice the parallel. Both of them responded immediately to the words of Christ. And here is another interesting aside. When we read through the Gospels, how often is it that we see those that are physically afflicted seeking out Jesus? That's fairly common as we read the Scriptures, isn't it? Someone blind, someone maimed in some way, someone who couldn't walk, the lady, the woman with the issue of blood. The illustrations are numerous. All of these with physical affliction are searching for Jesus. But when it's time to raise someone up spiritually, Jesus goes in search of them. There are a few exceptions to that, Nicodemus being one of them that we've looked at. He he did approach Jesus. The rich young man did approach Jesus, but there were obviously two great greatly differing outcomes. But by and large, When Jesus is ready to raise someone, spiritually speaking, he goes and searches them out. Matthew Henry says it this way. 
In bodily cures, ordinarily, he was sought out. But in these spiritual cures, he was found of them that sought him not. For this is the great evil and peril of the disease of sin, that those who were under it desire not to be made whole. Those who are under physical afflictions greatly desire to be made well. They go looking for Jesus. Those who are under a spiritual affliction of sin are not desiring to be made whole. But yet Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who calls his sheep out by name, leaves the ninety and nine and goes after the one that he has set his affection on. And aren't you thankful you represent one of that number? How many of you would bear out the testimony that when Christ found you, you were not looking for him? You were occupied with your worldly service and occupation, just like Matthew. We'll see again here in a moment. But yet Jesus found you. He extended a call to you. And then mysteriously gave you the ability in the extending of that call to respond to it. And you've been following him ever since. That's grace. And that's mercy. That's the nature of our compassionate Savior. The first thing that I want you to see again is one out of a multitude. The multitude is coming to Jesus. Notice that he left the crowded house and he's gone back to the seaside. No doubt seeking a little respite from the crowd, but they find him anyway. And so what does he do? He taught them. And then as he's leaving, as he's passing by, he sees Levi. Notice what Levi was currently occupied in. He was sitting at the tax office. What was he doing? He was collecting taxes from his countrymen, extorting money from them, making money hands over fist himself, being despised by his countrymen, and yet Jesus sets his affection on him. The principle that we, can, that we can draw out of this is that Jesus saves those presently involved in the grossest of sins. You need not clean yourself up to come to Christ. You need not get things in order to come to him. And again, many of us would bear out the testimony that this is exactly what happened to us. And aren't you humbled by the fact that you were one out of a multitude? Doesn't it make you just want to render praises to him as we read out of Psalm 56 because he has delivered your soul from death? You realize that we would still be dead in sin if Jesus hadn't set his affection on you. If you weren't the one out of a multitude that he set his eye upon and issued a call, then figuratively speaking, we would still be sitting at the tax office. We would still be giving our time, our energy, everything that we are to the sin that ensnared us and had captured us. And so this is the beginning of Matthew's calling 
and his conversion. And I'm going to preach this to you in a way that this is more than just Jesus calling him to follow him on the road as a disciple. This is Matthew's conversion. And I realize we're reading a lot into two words, but really I think the scriptures will bear this out as we look at it. Jesus sees him, and in the 14th verse, says two words. Follow me. And I wish we had more detail. (laughs) You would think Matthew, giving his own recollection of this, would give us more detail. Many suppose that he doesn't because of his own humility. I don't know what the reason was. He does refer to himself as Matthew instead of Levi, which points to the name or the new name that he was referred to by. But what all is bound up in these two words? What was Christ's expectation of Matthew when he said to him, follow me? Well, we can look at the other words that the other gospel writers have given us, such as Luke. Luke said he forsook all or left all. So bound up in the expectation of Jesus to follow me was to forsake everything else. Give up everything else that is contrary or that is in the way of your being fully mine. And notice what all Matthew gave up almost instantaneously. Great wealth and the ability to continue to earn, if we can call it earning, though, his, though he was really robbing and stealing, the ability to continue to make and to amass this great fortune, he walked away from it. He walked away from it immediately. The principle that we can, again, gather from this is that Christ is greater than anything that this world would offer. What we have when we come to Christ to use the parable is the pearl of great price. We have found him whom our soul loves. And we will follow him. We will walk with him. So the first thing that is bound up in this is the expectation of Jesus to walk away from everything else. Everything contrary to what it means to be a follower of Christ to leave it. Isn't that what he asked of the rich young man? Go sell it all. Give it to the poor. And then come, follow me. But he would not do it. Another expectation of Jesus with these words is that he would not just follow him for a moment or for a while, for a short stroll down the street, but that he would become a lifelong follower of Christ. We can say that was an implication because of Matthew's response. Matthew walked with Christ for the rest of his days. He was used greatly by the one who called him while he sat at the tax office. Notice the language that Mark uses. Luke uses the same word. He arose. He stood up from his seat, a simple, everyday, ordinary act, but greatly signifying 
the transformation that had just happened to him, he stood up and followed the Lord. Some call this and refer to this as the effectual call. This is no general call. This is the powerful word of Christ penetrating the heart and mind of one of his sheep. His sheep hearing that powerful voice of the shepherd and standing up in response to it to follow him out. You remember John chapter 10, I call my sheep by name and what do they do? They know my voice, they hear my voice, and they come to me. Again, our experience as Christians is this very thing. There was a point in time in our life when we heard the voice of our shepherd Savior call our name. And the only thing that we could do to quieten our conscience, the only thing that we could do to remove the burden of guilt that has been heaped up against us, The only thing that we could do to find any rest was to go after him. To strike out after him, turning our backs on anything that would encumber us. And this is what Matthew does. Luke told us that this great party, we might call it, or this great feast that Levi threw, Matthew threw, was in Christ's honor. Most likely this was his farewell to all of his friends. We read, I believe it was, it's here in Mark, twice the, re- the repetition, many tax collectors were there. Many tax collectors were there. We don't know the number, but probably this was another crowded house And the Pharisees and scribes are somewhere at a distance taking all of this in, and it disturbs them. The religious elite and the self-righteous are always disturbed by grace because it totally upsets their whole scheme. If you are bound and determined to work out your salvation by works and you see Grace in action, it disturbs you. So the Pharisees are greatly disturbed. Let's read the details in verse verse 15. It happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now, a sinner to a Pharisee or to a scribe was any person who did not hold to the same scrupulous keeping of the law that they held to. And so really, if you weren't a Pharisee and a scribe, or desiring to be one, or keeping the laws that they said you must keep, then they considered you a sinner. Notice the distinction, though, between the tax collectors and sinners. It seems like the tax collectors were the greatest of sinners. They had to distinguish them from just sinners in general. Perhaps that's why the parable of, that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector 
is of such great importance. You remember that parable in Luke 18 that Jesus tells about the Pharisee who was standing thanking God. Oh, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all of these other men. I don't do this and I don't do that. And then he says, even like this tax collector. The worst of the worst. But in that parable, you remember who received the grace and mercy of Christ, right? The one who beat his chest, who would not even look toward heaven and just simply said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who was that? Again, it was the tax collector. So we have at least three instances in the Gospels. If we take that parable as as having represented a real person of three tax collectors that were mightily and greatly saved. So back to verse 15 through 15 and 16. What we see here is Jesus, the friend of sinners. That great old hymn that we sing, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Nowhere in the Gospels do we find Jesus distancing himself from those who lived an overtly sinful lifestyle. Do you suppose Jesus knew what the Jews, the scribes, and Pharisees thought of tax collectors? Of course he did. Did he know that they despised them, hated them, would even take their life if given an opportunity? Of course he did. But yet he displays the greatness of his salvation, the power of the gospel, in calling this man just with two words, and this man comes to Christ, gives his life to him, throws a party in Christ's honor, invites all of his friends. Why would he do that? Most likely because he wanted them to know the grace and the mercy that was bound up in this man, Jesus, that he had experienced. Matthew knew something about himself had changed. He probably could not put words and describe what had come over him that made him willing in a moment to turn his back on the very profitable business that he had. But yet he was more than willing. And so in his mind, friends, come here, come. Come and meet, come and see, come and listen to this man that changed my life. And in that, perhaps we we might feel a little conviction. How often with such great fanfare and how often with such great emotion are we inviting people to come and hear and see and be exposed to the words of Jesus to the heart and to the love, to the grace and the mercy of Christ. Notice that he didn't just invite them to come and listen to Jesus. He invited them to come and eat with Jesus. One of the most intimate things that still that we do together as the people of God or as people in society in general, is to come together to sit and eat a meal together. That's why fellowship over a meal is of such great importance to Christian life. It affords us an opportunity that we just don't get in everyday living and activity. 
So Jesus is here eating, and the Pharisees greatly disturbed by this. And notice they pointed out specifically, why does he eat with them? Why does he sit down and recline? Doesn't he know? I think the implication is here, as it is in other places, is doesn't he know what those that he has gathered himself to, what they do? How wicked they are. How evil they are. How tainted with sin they are. Why does he do this? How is it that he eats and drinks with them? Jesus lets the disciples off the hook here because he doesn't even give them time to answer that question. He answers that question himself. In the 17th verse. And in answering it, he gives us one of the greatest statements for the reason for which he left his glory in heaven with the Father that he had had from eternity past to enter into his own creation. This is the way he says it. It's repeated in Matthew and Luke, with Matthew again giving that extra quotation out of Hosea chapter 6. And this is what Jesus says. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Again, such great spiritual and profound truth taught by Jesus in referencing, illustrating some of the most common everyday things. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And here is where Matthew interjects. And I think in the interjection, greatly (laughs) offends the Pharisees because he says, Jesus says to them, go and learn what this means. The Pharisees, supposedly the most learned men, the scribes whose job it was to, to record the scriptures, to make new copies of the scriptures, if anyone were learned men, it would be these. But Jesus says to them, now go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what what does Jesus mean and Matthew mean by recording that here in this conversation? Notice Jesus says, I desire. So if this is a desire of Christ and we do well to, to heed it, to see it, In very few places do we read something like this, Jesus saying, this is what I want of you. This is what I desire of you. And what is it? Mercy. I desire mercy. In essence, he's saying, I desire you to act toward those who find themselves in less fortunate circumstances, to act toward them just like I act. Merciful, gracious, not sacrifice. Here Jesus is comparing and he's setting in opposition one to another the dispensing of mercy and gracious living and religious activity. Sacrifice was the activity of the religious. Sacrifice was the old covenant way of worship. But here, and again, you could read this same thing in Amos chapter 5. You could read it at the end of Malachi. 
You can read it in Psalm 40. This quotation is, is running everywhere throughout the Old Testament. I desire mercy and not your external religion. Give a cup of cold water in my name. Extend mercy to those around you. Why? Because isn't it true of each and every one of us, he has been merciful to us? Those who have received mercy, extend mercy. Those who have been forgiven, forgive. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, preach redemption through the blood of Christ. What we have received, we give. External religion does just the opposite. It takes a supposed reception and hoards it to itself. Supposedly and seemingly becoming more and more religious, higher and higher, exalting yourself. But Jesus, in essence, is saying, what I have given you, I've given you so that you can give it to someone else. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then to close out his words here back in Mark chapter 2, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You may have a notation there that the words to repentance are not in the original. Well, just go to Luke and they're in the original there. How do we understand this phrase of Jesus? Not only do we see him up in the previous paragraph as the great physician healing the one, telling him to get up, and go to your house. We see him not only as the great physician here, but as the great savior. And I think the best way to understand Jesus' words in the 17th verse here is to understand them in this way. I did not come to call the self-righteous. Wasn't that what the Pharisees and scribes were? Self-righteous, seeing themselves in need of nothing or no one, certainly not in need of grace and mercy from this man. He didn't even know enough not to associate with sinners. Why would they want anything to do with him? I did not come to call the self-righteous. This should, this should so greatly humble us and just make us get right down there in the dust. When we answer the question, or when we ask the question and receive the answer, Lord, then why did you come? I came to call sinners. I came to call sinners to repentance. There is not a greater Example. There may be some on par, but there's not a greater example of repentance than what Matthew does. He does an about face. He is sitting, literally sitting at the tax office. And he gets up and turns his back to it all and walks away. That's repentance. Repentance can be defined in numerous ways. But turning from your sin to Christ. 
in faith is repentance. And we have it displayed here by Matthew, perhaps greater than any other person in the scriptures. Remember what MacArthur said of him, no more notorious sinner called to be a disciple than Matthew. Everybody knew his occupation. But yet the moment he heard the word of Christ to follow him, what does he do? Amazingly. 180. He goes after Jesus. If you would come to Christ and follow him, that's the expectation. That all that you have trusted in, all that you have given your life's work to, all that is bound up in your expression of sin and separation from Christ, he calls you to himself and away from all of that. That's the nature nature of conversion. That's why we use the term. That's why we, we reference salvation in that way. That's why Jesus, again, said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have a new heart. And with these words, follow me. And Matthew's response, Matthew was given this new heart with a new desire to go after Jesus and an accompanying distaste for his former life. Do you see how much is encapsulated in those two words? And the response? Levi sitting at the tax table had no desire. He had no appetite to do anything but sit right where he was. But enter the scene, Jesus the Christ, the Savior, piercing through all of the deadness of his heart, piercing through all of the sin that was there, issues the call to him, follow me. And then immediately, new desires and abilities were were given to Matthew, the Spirit of God. Now he is willing and able to turn his back on everything. That's the greatness of salvation. That's the issuing of the call, follow me above all else. Yes, consider the cost. Yes, very often it is taking up the cross and following him. But we can't miss Jesus' words. I did not come for the self-righteous. That doesn't mean the self-righteous can't be saved and aren't. That doesn't mean that there weren't Pharisees called to Christ and came in faith. They did. Nicodemus, example number one. But by Jesus' own admission and on the authority of his own word, he said, I did not come to call those self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the gospel invitation. We studied this morning in our Sunday school hour the, the great feast that was prepared. The master or the Lord of the house sent out his servants and says, go, invite them to the feast. 
the initial invitation, those to whom the initial invitation was sent, refused. One said, I'm too busy. One said, I just got married and can't come. Not a good time for me. One said, I've just got a new toy. What was this toy? A yoke of oxen. I just got a new toy. I got to go try it out. I got to go play with it. One was just indifferent. I just, I just can't right now. When really he was saying, I just won't right now. All of those different types of excuses. And there are many excuses that still are parallel those. Those who are indifferent. Those who are too busy. Those who are too attached to their work. Whatever it may be. Those who are too attached to the glittering, shimmering things of the world. And by the time we got down to the end of that parable, what's happening? The master is saying, you just go out and find somebody breathing. Anywhere. Highways, byways, hedges, any person breathing. And you invite them to come to this feast that I have prepared. That's how far reaching the invitation of Christ's gospel is. To come and follow him. The word that is used there in that parable is a word that we need to be more and more familiar with. Compel them to come in. Compel them. And so let me close this morning by compelling you. Following Christ will be the greatest thing that you can ever do. You will not do it in your own strength. You will not even take the first step toward him in your own strength. But when you hear his voice and you respond to him, you will have been a recipient of the mercy and the grace of the shepherd savior. And your life will be forever changed. Can I compel you to come to Christ? Turn your back on the things of the world? Whatever defines you, if it's not Jesus Christ, turn your back on it because I can tell you with great certainty in the day of judgment, it will profit you nothing. You will look for your treasure, your riches on that day and it will have vanished. It's of no value to you. Spiritually speaking, the moth And the rust will have completely destroyed it. In that day of judgment, you will need a righteousness that will stand the intense scrutiny of a holy God. And there is only one place, one person where you will find that righteousness which will stand up under that intense scrutiny and wrath of a holy God, and that is in Jesus Christ. Be compelled to come to him. This is the day of grace. This is the day of salvation. The day of your death is known only to the Lord. Thankfully, we should be supremely thankful that we don't know The scriptures says it is appointed 
for a man to die once. And after that, the judgment. Are you prepared to die? Are you prepared to die? If you never make it home today, are you prepared to be launched out into eternity? If you are not united to Christ by faith, you are not prepared. But thankfully, if you are united to Christ by faith, you are as prepared as you ever need be. Come and follow him. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to change your life and make you a lover of himself and a lover of all that is good and righteous. Come to Christ before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the conversion of Matthew. We thank you for the calling that you issued to him, the change that you wrought in his heart, making him willing in the day of your power. We thank you for these words of Jesus that remind us that he came to call sinners to repentance. Father, would you issue, by your Spirit, would you issue that call to all who are here? Would the powerful Christ speak those two words to every heart? Follow me. Lord, we pray and ask it so that Christ is glorified and honored, that his work of redemption, the shedding of his blood, the giving of himself, all of that might be magnified and glorified and worshipped, that there be more voices added to the choir of the redeemed. Lord, we're asking you to do it because it accords with your own nature. You are not willing that any should perish. So, Lord, we pray and, and ask of you, as you peer into the hearts of men and women here in this place this morning, if there are any that are perishing, would you save them? Would you reveal yourself to them? Lord, we know you to be gracious, abounding in mercy, long-suffering, patient. But we also know that there is a day coming when all that will come to an end. You will gather the sheep and the wheat into your barn. The goats will be driven away to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. The chaff will be burnt up. Just as this gospel feast is prepared and ready, so is that day of judgment. You tell us in the scriptures it is burning even now like an oven. So Father, we pray that you would save our friends, save our family members, save our children.
We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.